The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Is it mad that the world burning is not in our, like, top three concerns? You thought bad news was done, but I'm back with more. And Alice Sneddon's Bad News Saves the World. I finally address the climate crisis and explore why no one cares. Watch it on thespinoff.co.nz. I can see the anxiety starting to emit from you. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by Spark Lab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about Spark Lab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. Kia ora koutou katoa and welcome to Business is Boring. Over the last 10 years, venture capital and the high growth world in Aotearoa have matured massively and become more professional, international and specialised. One of the companies epitomising this transition is Icehouse Ventures that has gone from part of a business incubator with 500k under management to now being its own venture with a range of funds, more than 400 million under management and at the end of last year closing its own $10 million raise to continue its growth and impact. CEO Robbie Paul has led that raise and the growth of the firm and he joins us now to chat his journey, the industry and the impact venture capital can have for NZ Inc. Tanakwe, thank you for being here, Robbie. Good to be here, Simon. Hey, so first up with your um, lingering American accent there, how did you come to be working in VC in New Zealand? Well, I told people in the summer of 2008 that I had a job with Icehouse that I didn't actually have. I had a pretty tenuous connection to the CEO uh, at the time, Andy, through a friend of a friend, and I was tired of people asking me what I was going to do in New Zealand. So I said I was working for Icehouse. I got here. I was told no. I um, didn't accept that answer. I told him I'd work for free, and two months later, I started working for free, and 15 years later, I'm still here. (laughs) How did you come to be heading to New Zealand in the first place? I came here in 2001 with some friends, and uh, 2004, I traveled to South Island with uh, my family. 2007, I studied abroad at the University of Auckland, and 2008, I moved back here. So it was just successive uh, rounds of falling in love with the country and and all the special things that it has. And I had a one-year visa when I arrived, and I got residency, got citizenship, have Kiwi kids, and uh, yeah, not going anywhere. (laughs) And that kind of, you know, like I said in the intro there, the changes over the last 15 years that the Ice House kind of epitomizes are the changes in the whole ecosystem here. What was it like when you first got involved? Well, it's changed a lot, but I think the most exciting thing to acknowledge is that the change was in the improvements were inevitable, right? You could see it coming, not, not to act like I could predict the future, but ultimately venture, venture capital ecosystems and startup ecosystems thrive as a result of recycling of talent and recycling, recycling of networks and knowledge and, and capital. And that takes time, right? And you could see companies like Zero and Trade Me way back in the day, and then f- people coming out of those companies and starting new companies or advising other com- companies or investing in them. And that that 
sort of family tree was going to develop more and more. And now you can see that's happening. But the most uh, exciting thing to observe about that is that that is going to continue to happen. And it's happening at an increasing rate with, uh, you know, new companies like Rocket Lab and Lanzatex spinning out other companies and those companies spinning out other companies. So it's, yeah, it's matured a lot. It's on the international scene. There's a lot more international connectivity. There's a lot more proof points. And I think there's a lot more people in the ecosystem that are believers, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, it's kind of one of the themes of this podcast over the years has been the way that, you know, like you put it with the family trees coming from those first big companies to succeed. Uh, you know, Zero being so influential and B2B SaaS and, you know, Lanzatech and Rocket Lab and their deep tech and, uh, you know, that hardware uh, play play that you never would have thought would be here. Tell us about those family trees. Well, the thing you just pointed out when you say Zero, Rocket Lab and Lanzatech, the other part that's exciting is that there, there's not a pattern there. It's not like uh, New Zealand generally had an ad- advantage, ad- advantage in agritech and agritech only, and thus it could build a couple of companies. It's demonstrating that it can build very valuable global companies across the spectrum. And that's just the nature of entrepreneurship, right? There's not a ton, but there are a few great entrepreneurs that identify a real opportunity and can um, execute on that and and win on a global stage. And um, and it's just continuing to, to happen. And you can't really pick up on the pattern. It's not a specific industry. It's not based on timing. It's just a sort of natural flow of, of uh, entrepreneurial evolution. I love that and can't agree enough with that. I remember sitting on a webinar with a really, you know, g- great international investor who said that, you know, New Zealand should stick to what it's good at, agritech, fintech, and space. And it was like, well, if you'd had that advice before we had a space industry, there's no way that we could have had it, you know, like you've got to be open to whatever could come because it's so unlikely that we have a space industry. Yeah, I mean, Rocket Lab is one of those companies that actually has a bit of a unique advantage, right, because they're launching rockets and their only risk is that they hit gannets as opposed to the thousands of planes overhead in, in the U.S. So, And it's a you know English-speaking, politically stable sort of friend of, of the U.S. So when you're launching ICBMs, you, they don't feel as threatened. I don't think Rocket Lab could have started in, in certain com- mm-hmm. uh, countries for sure. But yeah, the, the assertion that that the country is good at um, a specific industry um, is sort of insane, right? And it's that's the the that argument is backed up by the variety of companies that are being built in, um, across all sorts of spectrums. And what you can observe, though, is that Rocket Lab is building capability, and there are people spinning out of Rocket Lab with that capability and those unique perspectives. And so you can build upon the industry and and sort of grow a, a family tree within that that sort of vertical. And that massive ambition, right? Because one of the coolest things that I see from people who've been influenced by, you know, especially out of Rocket Lab and the Peter Beck School, is that huge ambition and add a couple of zeros and think bigger. Yeah, I I actually was speaking about this today and I'm totally factually wrong, but close enough. So take um, Kim and Anvil Benyez, right, from Denison Technologies, which is this artificial muscle company, right? So the, one was a researcher, one was a, um, uh, an engineer uh, um, in the Air Force. Um, they've, they're about three years in, they're about 30 years old, they have no revenue, they've raised some seed capital, uh, they're building technology for an industry that is still nascent uh, and in some ways hard to imagine, right? And that all sounds insane. But go back to 2009, Peter Beck was 30 years old-ish, uh, raised in Infocargill, 
worked on a 124-foot yacht as, a, as an engineer, had a few years at IRL, was building um, rockets for an industry that didn't totally exist and was a bit hard to imagine, uh, no revenue, $99,000 grant from the Foundation of Research Science and Technology, which was the predecessor's predecessor to Callahan, right? And now look at them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, leading a billion-dollar company, advisor to the prime minister, uh, listed on the NASDAQ, director of, of Outset and Partly and, and Foundry Lab and Halter and so many others. And um, and so going back to the first point, like why can't uh, a, a Kim and an Anvil follow that path and build something really big and, and uh, go again like Pete has? Tell us a bit about what the setup of Icehouse Ventures is now. As over the years, it's changed a bit and changes you have led. Yeah, the the best thing about Ice House is that it's known. the The challenging thing about Ice House is it's known for many things, right? Today, we're just a venture capital firm investing from pre seed to Series D to to quite late stage. So, uh, on a spectrum, we've done forty grand checks into concepts, and and we've invested twenty five million into companies like Crimson and Halter and and Dawn and Mint and and others that are scaling. So. Uh, our sole purpose is to be transformative investors in transformative Kiwi companies. We've invested in 330 to date. Uh, we start as early as possible and we continue to invest in those companies uh, on successive capital raises and based on uh, progress and traction and, and everything else. And the company itself was part of something that was also a business incubator and had an angel network and had quite a few kind of things ways in that people might have come to know it. And so now very much its own venture, very much a professional venture capital uh, operator. Yeah, I think the clarity has been really helpful, right? Just to have a single focus, uh, a single set of two customers being founders and investors um, and and essentially a single approach to business. We raise money for funds based on different strategies and we deploy that capital into New Zealand tech companies um, based on, you know, the mandates that we set. And yeah, I think the history really helped us and and shaped us in so many ways. And one that's probably not obvious is that when the angel community formed, we formed a nominee vehicle. That nominee vehicle was an entity through which individual angels could invest. And in, say, an example with you and I, if you invested $90, I invested $10, the nominee vehicle would invest 100, holding 90% for you, 10% for us. The, and the reason I point that out, even though it's very nuanced, is that's what's that was the foundation upon which we built this entity, where we now have 2,000 investors in our funds and another 1,000 investors who've made direct investments into companies through our nominee vehicle. Uh, and the, that is the foundation upon which we've been able to build uh, 30 different funds when in. 10 years, typically, you'd have three different funds as a VC. Tell us about those funds as, yeah, you were saying you go right from kind of, you know, concept to Series D. What does that mean? You know, like what kind of funds do you set up to accomplish that? Our, our two core funds is a, a seed fund and a growth fund. Seed fund we define as literally idea stage, pitch deck, concept, pre-revenue, small teams, maybe just founders, uh, technical risk, market risk, you name it. And so the the first active seed fund was an $11 million fund we raised in 2016. That was in the first round of Halter. It was in the first round of Mint Innovation, first round of Sharesies, first round of Don Aerospace, very early in Tradeify and Parrot and Joyous and Jasper and uh, a bunch of others. And 
the idea was to leverage the sort of relationships and, and networks uh, and experience that we had to go find really promising entrepreneurs that were working on really interesting technology companies and to give them the, a, a chance and to invest in as early as possible in, in those companies. We've raised, uh, we raised 11 million for the first one, 26 for the second, 45 for the third seed fund. That's the one we're actively investing in now. So that fund made about 11 investments. It's in Ternary Kinetics, it's in Caruso, uh, it's in Zincovery, it's in Tracksuit and a bunch of other really cool companies. Those seed funds are designed to be in the earliest rounds, the first sort of one or two or three rounds where companies are raising hundreds of thousands to, to low millions. Our growth fund picks up where our seed funds leave off. The first growth fund was $110 million. The second one is approaching that amount right now. And that invests in a small subset of the companies that we funded and others have funded once companies have a bit of traction and a bit of momentum. They're typically five or six or seven years old, raising their third or fourth round of capital, teams of 50, uh, revenue, product, and market, and, and more substance across the board than you would expect with a seed fund. And then alongside that, you've done something that's pretty interesting in this part of the world, right, where you offer index funds, so trying to capture a lot of the market over a time period to give people exposure to all kinds of companies. Tell us about those. Like, How does that fit into the mix? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be proven wrong uh, uh, at some point, but, well, I'd rather not be proven wrong, but it, it is possible <laughs> yeah. that I'll be, I'll be proven wrong. But if you read enough, um, there's, there's not conclusive evidence uh, across uh, time and across geographies that one fund strategy works better than the other. Seed stage, late stage, um, highly concentrated, highly diverse, um, passive, active, uh, founders under 30, you know, uh, niches or whatever, right? Like ultimately, you, you can have any strategy so long as you are successful at identifying exceptional companies and get access to them. I, I always say I could have raised a, a, a braces fund and invested in any founder that had braces. And I could prove that that was the highest performing fund in this country because Jamie Beaton had braces when we first funded him, right? Um, and so uh, our structures enabled us to build different types of funds. And uh, that's interesting because ultimately there are a lot of investors who are predisposed to invest in the space and want to engage, uh, but bias towards certain missions or certain types of founders or certain uh, or you know approaches to risk or diversification. And you can see that across every other asset class, right? If you go to simplicity, you can choose the high growth fund, you can choose the conservative fund, the cash fund, you name it, right? And you can't see that very often in venture capital. It's sort of a one-size-fits-not-many approach. And so what we've been building organically over time is uh, other fund approaches than just an active seed fund or an active growth fund. And one that we've launched uh, or raised twice is IV100, which is a, a fund that invests in 100 companies. And what it does is take 100% uh, of the capital um, and then divide it up to about half of it going to the first round of the companies, the 100 companies that we fund. And then it reserves the second half and invests further in a small subset of those companies over time. So uh, a lot of people like to call it sort of spray and pray, um, but that would um, imply that you were taking equal shots to all the companies. And that's not the case, right? In the first fund, Henry and Rokos and Sharesies and Mint uh, ended up commanding 
like 10 times more capital uh, than some of the other companies that where we invested once, but they didn't achieve certain milestones or progress that that would merit more capital. Yeah, and it's not every company. It's every company that's good enough to invest in, right? That's right. When w- If you look at the data, we invested in about a third of the companies uh, that were funded by IceHouse Ventures in that period. So we were investing in a subset of them. Uh, 100 became a subset. And IceHouse Ventures was investing in about half of all the companies funded uh, in New Zealand. So, no, it's certainly... um, it's certainly not investing in everything that you stumble across. That's amazing. Like, being in and having relationships with half of all the investable ideas and founders in New Zealand, you get to have an extremely broad view of the industry and also optionality for the future, right, uh, as rounds progress and people start companies in the future with their experience and social and financial capital. From that, what kind of themes have you been able to draw about what makes for a good founder and what makes for a good company? Yeah, I think the first thing that you can observe is that like the founders that come back each time you meet, so not not monthly, but let's say you bump into a founder sort of every six months, uh, the ones that surprise you with a growing vision uh, is, tend to be the ones that are continuing to build out a, a bigger and bigger business. So in, in some cases, you fund a company and their focus uh, six months later, a year later, is just on that same target that they pitched you. In in other cases, they come back to you and and open your eyes to a totally different approach or business model or uh, uh, or or scale or ambition. Um, that's exciting. You know, the second is just what I'd call like gravitational pull, right? Um, certain founders just attract great talent. They attract great advisors. They attract recognition. They attract attribution from from the market. Um, they attract great uh, in, uh, uh, strategic partners and customers and and so on. And uh, that you know that's sort of a self fulfilling prophecy, right? Because once you start attracting the the right type of people, they can grow your ambition. They can grow your opportunities and and so on. And I mean, look no further than Craig being paired up with Pete Beck uh, from the early days and all the doors that Pete opened, but more importantly, the ambition that Pete could And, and um, that's Craig set. at Halter? That's right, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Craig at Halter getting just um, so many doors open, but also his sort of eyes open, I'd say, um, to you know the way that Pete thinks and the way that Pete's led Rocket Lab to become as significant as it is. And what makes for... You know, and this is you know this is a big old broad question, right? But what makes something an investable proposition? Because I guess you know there's those great themes in VC, which is you know you've got to be non-consensus and right and all the rest of it, right? <laughs> but you know, in in theory, it's probably like this looks crazy enough that it might work, but not so crazy that it scares us off. And there's a very interesting little grey area there, right? Oh God! I mean, the more I learn, the less I know. To be honest, on mm-hmm. on trying to pretend like you can pick individual companies, and, and I mean, if I was to have a view, I think in in venture capital, you um, cannot pick winners, right? And you can't really influence outcomes. Outcomes being a company goes from nothing to extremely consequential. You can help with steps along the way and provide guidance, but the sort of heroic results that that companies deliver. That's the founders driving it, right? And so that's a really interesting sort of identity crisis for an investor. Like I thought that's what I was supposed to do, pick pick the winners and then help them become the winners. <laughs> yeah, yeah, become more and successful. So I'm not supposed to do either of those. But there's a lot you can control, right? And I think the first thing you 
can try to control is your attractiveness as a partner to companies, right? And if you do that, you're more likely to have companies that have choices uh, choose you as an as an investor, right? You can choose the way you invest. You can choose the amount you can invest. You can choose whether or not you follow on uh, and concentrate capital. Um, and uh, you know you can choose the terms you accept or you don't accept. Um, and I, I know that's a, not a direct answer to your question, um, but that's a, the starting point is, um, you know, you can identify features that make a company attractive, team, unique perspectives, technology, economics, scale, and so on. But that doesn't mean that they're going to be the most successful ones. And equally, you can de- um, decline companies on those uh, on the same reasons, and those things can change. And and so the one thing that you can do or that we try to do is give as many promising entrepreneurs a chance as possible and then subject to them uh, validating something, proving themselves, uh, growing and needing and meriting more capital, you give them more capital. And over time, you make yourself uh, correct by concentrating most of the capital into a subset of companies over many years in successive capital raises. That's a lovely and kind of humble way of looking at it. But such an interesting thing to hear someone in VC say, you know, you can't pick great companies when, you, you know, um, that, is, <laughs> that is probably what people would think was the job there, right? Yeah. You know, I've asked Mary Meeker, I've asked so many of the sort of industry veterans um, the same question, which is, okay, you're in decade three. Um, are you better than decade one, Right. And you never get a direct answer, right? Because it is so hits-driven um, and, and there's so many variables that, you know, you could make a, a series of 100 bad decisions based on really high-quality action. But as long as you make one um, correct decision, even if it's based on bad actions, um, you could be proven right. So, uh, again, you go back to what you can control, right? Yeah, and you'd think that the longer you did it, the better options you would see because you had more reputation and more funds under management. But some of the companies from your very early years when you had hardly any capital in the scheme of things that have become kind of some of the defining companies of the New Zealand scene would put the lie to that. Well, the, the I mean, yeah. yeah that also just the act of hanging around does give you unique advantages, right? One reason it gives you an advantage is because not everybody hangs around, right? This is, um, it's a business where you can be enticed away in all uh, all different directions, and so yeah, hang, hanging around, having that that sort of halo effect and, and the reputational benefit you get by being associated with entrepreneurs that are doing really really great stuff is helpful because then you see the next set of companies either by referral from them or or by as a result of association with them. And we'll be back in a moment with Robbie to talk growing the business and going on the founder's journey in raising money himself. Spark is proud to partner with the Sustainable Business Network and the Climate Action Toolbox. The free Climate Action Toolbox can provide you with simple step-by-step guides to measure and reduce your emissions. Help lead the way to a low-carbon future for New Zealand. Visit sparklab.co.nz forward slash sustainability to find out more. New Zealand's number one business school wants to help you unlock your potential. 
At the University of Auckland Business School, learn to innovate, research, and collaborate with business leaders to drive real change. Join the business school that's doing things differently and find your passion at the University of Auckland. Check out auckland.ac.nz forward slash business to find the study option for you. Hokimai ano, welcome back to Business is Boring, where we're with Robbie Paul of Ice House Ventures. So, at the end of last year, you did what you're often on the other side of and raised $10 million for Ice House Ventures. Tell me about that. Why raise for the company itself? There are so many benefits beyond just having $10 million to, to spend that are so much more potent. And the the one thing that I can observe across 330 companies that we funded and, and many, many more that uh, we've watched and observed and, and known uh, is that just the process of fundraising is good for you, right? You have to think bigger. You have to better articulate uh, your plans. Um, you have to defend your your hypotheses. And, and um, you have to convince people that the mission you're working on is important and worth backing. And what I could observe is that people going through that would start to believe things that they didn't believe at the beginning of the process, right? Because if you have to think bigger and better articulate your vision and, and defend yourself, you start to become a believer in something bigger. And so the first idea was raise this money so we have to justify ourselves to stakeholders um, and and uh, in that process, we will become better ourselves in the business that we're operating in. Yeah, how interesting. What What is the vision that you grew into through that process and that you raised on? Well, the simple one is that we want to grow into becoming transformative investors into transformative companies and uh, to scale with Kiwi companies as they become globally consequential. And of course, if you do that, you can... Um, both do well and do good. That's like the, uh, the beautiful thing about venture capital is that, uh, and you know, the shareholders that are in uh, this space and our investors uh, is that you can get great intrinsic rewards, right, and great financial rewards at, at the same time. And you, you almost can't do good um, without doing well, and vice versa. And and so uh, the. You know, the vision that people bought in on was that we are uh, almost like a nation-level exposure to entrepreneurs, and entrepreneurs are a force for good, and they're unstoppable, and they're growing, and they're building things that um, that can become huge and impactful um, uh, around the world. And, uh, and of course, if you do that, um, then the business can become very valuable in its own right. What does that $10 million allow you to do? Lots, right? And I'll, I'll start with this. Every venture capital firm raises a fund, right? And then with that, uh, in, in that process, undertakes uh, to execute on a strategy. And that strategy is usually made up in uh, by finding, investing in, and adding value to Kiwi companies, right? So you raise the money, and then you sit down with the whiteboard, and you write down all the ways um, that you can find, uh, invest in, and add value to companies. And you... Uh, you know, have ideas of of ways you can add value and and events and ways you can project your brand and ways you can engage more deeply with companies and connect them and and so on. And then you realize that unless you are a fund of a vast scale, you do not have the management fees to properly invest in everything that you are uh, excited to invest in. 
And of, of course, the ironic thing about venture capital is that it exists because people want to fund development or ambitions that they can't afford with their current revenue. And yet venture capital firms aren't doing that themselves, right? And that, which is essentially what we've done, right? We've, uh, we are funding the uh, ability to build more quickly, grow more quickly um, before revenue shows up. And is that like, because people is such a big part of that as well. Hey, like it really feels to me that the growth of Ice House has mirrored the professionalization of the local scene. And that's the people who have been through the process, who uh, have, you know, seen a lot of the companies come through, who have the networks to be able to uh, recommend, you know, a new operating officer for a company, you know, like, and that is like kind of a human capital thing. As much as a capital thing, which uh, it'll be interesting to talk about your views on how much if we have enough capital here. But yeah, like like how are we going with kind of the 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 human capital side of VC here? Well, it's developing quickly, mm-hmm. which is great, and you're seeing a lot of talent come back from uh, overseas. You're seeing a lot of companies um, build value and then spin out talent that that are you know helping the next generation. Uh, there's just way more global connectivity, and yeah, and certainly from Icehouse Ventures' point of view, and this this capital raise that we've done, uh, you know, part of it, of course, is is growing the ambition that helps us attract and retain great people because great people have choices, uh, and they choose based on you know the mission, you know, the path that 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 they can go on, and uh, you can either be an organization that can paint the brightest future for them. Uh, or not. And if you're not, how are you going to have the type of people that you need to engage with and and add value to really great companies uh, as a venture capital firm, right? One of the things that's happened at Icehouse, which is really interesting in that maturity of the scene, is more traditional kind of, uh, you know, investment uh, groups like Jardin and um, Simplicity uh, as the first Kiwi saver to to jump into uh, supporting venture capital have come on board to support funds and make investments and be part of the company. That's really interesting, hey, as that's something that you see a lot of overseas but is relatively new here. How would you characterise where New Zealand is as an ecosystem versus, you know, lots of people say Australia's kind of 10 years ahead because they had their big Atlassian kind of, you know, marquee-type companies that helped build it and our trade me's and our zeros were a few years f- further along. And then you look at Silicon Valley, which is many decades and many, many billions of dollars more um, defence kind of spending and stuff, uh, you, you, you know, uh, incubating those industries. But yeah, where, where does New Zealand sit in terms of m- maturity now, do you think? And where do you see it going? I mean, we just have a really bright future, right? We have all the facets that we need, and we've got global trends that are disproportionately helping uh, New Zealand, right? So just globalization, right? Or just connectivity, or just the cultural mindset of being able to work remote, do deals remote, those things really help uh, a country like New Zealand. And then you have this country that is, you know, English speaking, it's politically stable, it's naturally beautiful, and, um, and just sort of adored by people around the world. And guess what? Smart people and people with resources have choices and more and more are making choices to spend time in New Zealand. And that's super exciting, right? And then you have companies who can just get offshore uh, without flying, um, raise money offshore, 
do deals offshore, have high teams in the U.S. And so in some ways, I mean, small is the new big, right? It's it's easier to navigate. It's less complicated. It's less political. And I think it could really um, thrive in the next decade or so. Is there enough money here for the amount of talent and ideas that you see? I mean, there's always enough money and there's never enough money, right? Because I think entrepreneurship uh, uh, in it, you know, entrepreneurship like has an insatiable appetite for capital and resource. So in that respect, you could never have too much capital. In in the same way, though, there's a lot of people who think that companies are constrained by capital, and that's just so false, right? Great companies have been able to for decades and continue to be able to access all the capital they need and more. So I guess I'm sort of on both sides of that that argument, but I I certainly don't subscribe to the idea that that there's not enough capital around for companies. How about talent? As that's a really interesting one, in that there's lots of great homegrown talent, but people who have grown up with a deep understanding of bigger markets and scale, you know, like there's this idea I always come back to, which is if you've come from a four peanut butter country, you kind of need to go to a country that has a whole row of peanut butters, a whole aisle of them to understand how big, you know, a US or a Chinese market can be, right? How about that kind of talent interplay with, do we have enough people who are working overseas and coming here in the productive years of their career? And is talent a blocker for the companies that you're working with? Well, first, I'd rather have one jar of picks than an entire row of American <laughs> peanut butter. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not like sure that. that analogy works as well. <laughs> the, my view on sort of macro challenges is that they broadly can exist, but great companies are not affected by them, right? There's always uh, a narrative that there's not enough capital or talent or you have this tyranny of distance or or it's more difficult to operate as a New Zealand company than it is a Delaware C Corp. And then you have counterexample after counterexample of companies that are thriving and competing globally despite all those things. So I, I don't know. The other way I look at it is I was at this gathering in New York. And I mean, surely New York, like we should all recognize and they should recognize, has it all, right? And what were they talking about? Oh, we just need one more hero company. We need one more big anchor tenant, like an Amazon or a Microsoft in town. We need more university research. Like we, um, we need more seed investors. And of course, if we were looking on, we were thinking, you know, compared to New Zealand, don't you have it all, right? And so I guess that's sort of the nature of entrepreneurship, which is a healthy tension where, um, you, you know, ambition is insatiable, and and so everybody always wants more of of everything, and that's probably a good thing. Do, do, do I specifically think that um, companies here are disproportionately constrained um, relative to their peers based on talent? I mean, I mean, maybe. But in the U.S., you're also competing against employers that can pay three times more than you can. So, you know, be careful what you wish for. In terms of, like, who should be involved with VC, there's some really interesting stuff because currently, you know, the rules around investing with wholesale investors mean people need to be kind of unusually wealthy or unusually experienced in investing to participate as investors in VC. And then if you look over the ditch in Australia, it's so cool how they have as part of their superannuation system, their KiwiSaver, people can self-direct little parts of their uh, super toward 
classes like investment, uh, venture capital, which is really cool, right? So more people, more like normal people can participate. Would you like to see more of this here? Like, how can we get more people so it isn't just a conversation for people who are, you know, exited founders and people who are lucky to have lots of resources? Well, I'm, I'm a huge proponent and I'm sort of a customer myself, right? When In 2012, when I was committing to um, BookTrack and, and Parrot Analytics and um, Shuttlerock and, and others, I was probably committing about my entire net worth to each of those companies <laughs> at the time, yeah. right? And Which is a... No, this is not investment advice, but, the, <laughs> but we would advise not to do that. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and so I've, I've had the benefit of, of being on the, the sort of inside of the ecosystem, so I can participate in the asset class, but it is a bit insane uh, that, that others can't, right? Especially if there are products or approaches that are, are balanced and considered. I absolutely appreciate the um, need to protect consumers from making rash decisions and spending all of their uh, wealth on on individual uh, illiquid high risk long term companies, um, but uh, right now people are in the words of Sharesies being priced out and and left out, and uh, I think it's exciting to to think about ways to engage more of the sort of future wealth generators, future company creators, uh, and, and aspirational people who um, in New Zealand uh, who want to invest in this space. And it is getting better, right? Like. One of the reasons Australia is so far ahead is that they, they have had their version of KiwiSaver for so much longer and they have these deep pools of capital and more people are involved in long-term investment and that kind of thinking. And we've come a long way in just 10 years. But it's, yeah, it feels like there's, there's quite a way to go still. Yeah, from, from a regulation point of view, it's not changed, right? In fact, it's gotten harder to uh, be a wholesale investor in New Zealand and the, the bar has gone up, but you're right that if it, it seems like an inevitability that will follow the um, Australian super approach, it will grow. It's long-term capital that it can be invested in long-term investments, and you know, look no further than the biggest um, uh, foundations and institutions in the world. They allocate a very small portion to tech, venture, private equity, and in, in this space. And so, why can't that be? Um, opened up to a wider audience. If you had a magic wand, what kind of things would you change to increase the whole category and to, to, to add some fuel to the fire? Well, I, I, look, I'm, I'm really optimistic for uh, how far it's come. And m- maybe it's just the echo chamber I'm in and I'm surrounded by more optimistic and, and aligned people. But you got to believe that it, it must be observable that there are more believers and less cynics about the startup world, right? And it it just takes proof points. You can't just have a single company and have the whole country believe that it, it's worth investing in this space. And so now what you have is way more participants in the space for a way longer time invested in way more companies. And uh, that, that sort of fuels greater belief, right? Because these people who are participating in uh, individual investing also are becoming people of, of influence, right? They're running KiwiSavers, they're running wealth management firms, they're advising others, they're uh, working in family offices. And I've had plenty of conversations where um, people who've been investing as angels have now found themselves uh, as a trustee of an investment entity. And now they're saying, of course, we should be putting a small amount of investment in this space. But what uh, 14 years ago, 
when Francesca Benga, who was CEO of NZVIF, was uh, making a presentation about if NZ Super could just allocate a small amount of the space, it seemed extremely radical. And I just don't think that's the case anymore. So I don't think I have a, a magic wand, just be, and not to sound like I'm sort of you know, trying to win favor with entrepreneurs, but I just have a lot of optimism um, that you leave entrepreneurs to do what they're doing and they're they're going to continue to do great work. And so sure, there's probably small things that can be fixed, but ultimately the, the big things will be fixed by the, the founders. Yeah, love it. And what advice would you have for people interested in this world? So you've been kind of an incredible talent spot of some of the people who uh, you, you've helped to mentor and bring up through Ice House Ventures. Like, what if people are interested in this world? What, where should they start? It's just the most accessible ecosystem ever. So I would start by identifying the people you want to learn from and reach out to them directly or by way of the guaranteed second degree connection that you have, right? That is the the single fastest way to learn and to grow your ambition is to talk to people that are a few steps ahead of you and those people are accessible, right? I mean, even, even the... the Fatty Mashrikis of this world and Jamie Beatons and and Peter Becks, the, the ones who you think are, are busier than than all hell and don't have time uh, or are, are too important. Um, most of them extract tons of meaning and reward by working with um, new aspirational people um, and entrepreneurs. So I just say go straight to the source and, and, and aim as high as possible. Awesome. And as a final thought, what will success be for, for you personally and for Ice House Ventures? I'd go back to that, you know, the point that, you know, venture capital just brings so much intrinsic reward. And and so success is seeing companies become really consequential and, and meaningful. And success is surviving through a, a decade of skepticism and cynicism and, and doubts and then being proven right when these companies uh, do start to thrive. And so that's success, right? Seeing uh, entrepreneurs that you gave a chance, um, uh, you've supported against all odds, uh, becoming something um, really special and, and uh, helping the next generation. Yeah, love it. Well, thank you so much for coming and sharing the story so far. Uh, looking forward to continuing seeing where you take it next. That's Robbie Paul, CEO at iSales Ventures. Kelda. Thanks. So thank you to Robbie. Thank you to you for listening and thank you to everyone who helps make this happen, like our producer, Teihe Butler. Do follow and leave us a review if you like what we do. Enoho da. From the Spinoff Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin Off Podcast Network.